sin makes a mess of things. We see that here in Genesis chapter 16. Sin makes a mess of things. Can't you see that it's also true in your life? Sin makes a mess of things. Don't you long to be free from the mess of things? That you need to be free from sin. You need to be free from your own sin. And you need to be free from the sin of others against you. You need to get beyond the reach of other sinners. And that's not going to happen overnight. But salvation begins in the middle of the mess. And salvation encompasses the eventual cleanup of the mess. Salvation is not less in its final stage than the cleaning up of the entire mess. We see Jesus in this passage beginning a work of grace in Hagar's life as he has begun it already in Abram and Sarai's lives. But we see that the works of grace that he has begun in each of their lives doesn't exempt them from sin here and now, nor the mess that sin makes. It should be clear to us by the end of tonight's message that salvation does not exempt us from sin here and now either, and the mess that sin makes. But just as Abram, Sarai, and Hagar experience the beginning of God's saving grace here and now in the middle of the mess, so we who are trusting in Christ Jesus have experienced the beginning of God's saving grace here and now in the middle of the mess. Salvation begins, indeed, in the middle of the mass of sin. But salvation encompasses the eventual cleanup of the mess. That's the big idea of tonight's message. So let's begin by looking at the mess that sin makes and work towards seeing the salvation from it that Christ begins here in this passage. Let's look first at Abram and Sarai's first sin. I don't mean their first sin overall, of course. They've both sinned up to this point in their life, but the first sin recorded for us in this passage. It is a conspiracy of sin that implicates both Abram and Sarai. In verses 1-4, to we see that Sarai proposes that Abram take another wife, namely Hagar, her servant. This is sin. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24 has already defined marriage for us, and it's a perfectly good definition that abides to the present day. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, singular, and they shall become one flesh, or the two not the three, shall become one flesh. Polygamy is sin right from the beginning. Tim Keller remarked that if you just read through quickly, if you just read through Genesis quickly, you might think that it condones polygamy because you look and you see all of these various figures, including Abram, right here before us in this passage, marrying multiple wives. It's fairly commonplace throughout the book of Genesis. But Keller makes the good point that if you actually read more closely, what you see is that polygamy makes a mess of things every time that it occurs in the book of Genesis. Next time you read through Genesis in your own devotions at home or whatever, pay attention to all the strife and difficulty that happens because of multiple wives and children born to multiple wives and all this kind of thing. It makes a mess of things. Sin makes a mess of things. So this is Abram and Sarai's first sin here in this passage. Conspiring together for Abram to take another wife, namely Hagar. I want you to note the parallels between this chapter of Scripture and another chapter of Scripture. The woman took and gave to her husband. And the man listened to the voice of his wife. Sound familiar? Genesis chapter 3. So where did this idea come from? It starts with S. The next letter is A. And then three blanks. 
Sarai, of course. S-A-R-A-I. Right? But I'm, I'm being lighthearted. But if we think about what's going on underneath, it really is S-A-T-A-N. Right? This is, this is a sinful idea. We don't know how this temptation came to Sarai. I mean, by this time, she was already past childbearing age. And she knew the promises that had been made to Abram. Some commentators think that perhaps she was reasoning that the promises were made to Abram, not necessarily to her, and that as she was getting old, perhaps she would die and she would have no share whatsoever in the fulfillment of the promises that God had made to Abram. Maybe she would die and Abram would take another wife and the promises would be made uh, would be fulfilled, pardon me, through the seed of a younger woman. And so Sarai thought, well, I've got to do something to make sure that I have a share in this. Or perhaps her thinking was simply like Abram's thinking. God made these promises, and we can't see how they're going to be fulfilled, so maybe we better come up with a plan B. Evidently, Abram was thinking something like that when he agreed to this plan. We don't know exactly how it came up, but... But really, underneath is the work of the enemy of our souls. Somehow the temptation came to Sarah uh, by her own sinful desires by which she was led astray, as the Apostle James tells us, and possibly or probably partly through the temptation of the serpent. For we know that there would be enmity between the seed of Eve and the seed of the serpent, that We also know that God had made a promise to Eve that one of her descendants would crush the serpent's head. And we know, of course, that when God promised Abram that in his offspring all the nations of the earth should be blessed, that was a pretty good tell that the seed who's going to crush the serpent's head is going to come from Abram's loins. And so perhaps Satan, thinking to thwart or divert the plan of God to this effect, had a hand in this. In any case, this was their first sin. And Abram, like Adam, when this temptation came to him, through his wife, should have crushed the serpent's head, so to speak, as opposed to eating of the forbidden fruit. So we see the actual sin, but we also see in Abram a sin under the sin, which is passivity. Abram was created, as Adam was, and like all men are, to exercise dominion over the earth. That there is a leadership with which men are charged. And here in this passage, Abram fails to exercise it. He doesn't exercise godly leadership in this respect. He should have said when Sarai came to him with this idea, as Joseph says later on in the Genesis passage, how could I do such a thing and sin against God? That's what Joseph said when he was tempted by Potiphar's wife. And that's what Abram should have said when he was tempted by his own wife. So their first sin is conspiring together to rebel against God's revealed will in that Abram would take another wife for himself, namely Hagar. Let's look now at Sarai's further sin, verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, Sarai blames Abram. May the wrong done to me be on you. Wait a second. What? Whose idea was this? This, this is an incredibly unfair statement. May the wrong done to me be on you. Sarai was the originator of this idea. If there ever was an unjust accusation, this is it. And then in verse 6, Sarai deals harshly with Hagar. Certainly that's not right. Under the best of circumstances, Sarai shouldn't deal harshly with with Hagar. That wouldn't be right in the best of circumstances. But again, Sarai should recognize Hagar is in this situation because of her. And so it's especially unjust for her to be harsh rather than own the consequences of her own sin. And so Sarai compounds 
the problem with her own sin. Contra much of modern feminism, this shows us that not all the problems in the world are because of men. Right? The, the reality is, the reality is that women are co-heirs with us of the grace of life, but women are also co-heirs with us of the problem that made the grace of life necessary to come to us in the person and the work of Christ Jesus. Right? Proverbs 21.9 says, It is better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. And quarreling is obviously not the only sin that a woman can commit. A woman's sin in other areas can make a mess of her family's life as well. It should be noted as we make our way through. Men and women are equal in dignity and worth and value, co-heirs of the grace of life, and co-sinners. And that's an important point to know in our context where so much rolls downhill to men all the time. Abram's further sin. Not only is Sarai compounding the problem by her further sin, but so is Abram. Verse 6. Sarai comes to him and says, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. When Abram married Hagar, and he did marry her, look at verse 3. Sarai gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. What that did legally in that day and age was give her the rights of a wife. Which means that before, where she was directly answerable to Sarai, now she was directly answerable to Abram. So what Abram's doing in this section is actually creating a situation whereby she's forfeiting her rights as a wife. Whereby her rights as a wife are now taken away and she's put back in an answerable position to Sarai. Which is, again, a ridiculously unfair thing to do given that it was Abram and Sarai's decision to make Hagar a wife. What Abram should have done in that situation was led his admittedly irregular household. He should have been the head of the home. And even though they had sinned to this point, what he should not have done was compound it with further sin of passivity, as he does here. Relinquishing leadership, he's like, well, okay, well, do what you want. That's not right. What he should have done was rebuked his wife, Sarai, for her unfair and unjust attitude toward Hagar. And what he should have done was rebuke his wife, Hagar, for her unjust and unfair attitude toward Sarai. Hagar shouldn't have been looking with contempt at Sarai, and Sarai shouldn't have been having such a bad attitude in response to Hagar. Abram should have took some leadership here, given the fact that though he shouldn't have had two wives, he did. He's responsible to lead them both. But what he does is he actually leads neither. So he compounds things by his further passivity. And we should note, as we're as I've already alluded to, present gender discussions, the sin of passivity is something that still really plagues men. You look around at how many guys are sitting around drinking banks at lunchtime and like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, even earlier, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. What, what are you guys doing? Why aren't you at, why aren't you at work? Right? I'm, not, I'm not necessarily talking to the, the men in here. I know that you guys have jobs and, and are working hard, but this is a big cultural sin in today's day and age. And so what you see is that men actually have sin that's making a mess of things in this modern society. Women actually have sin that's making a mess of things even here in this modern society. And the men are blaming the women and the women are blaming the men. What we need to do is own our own sin. Strive as men not to be passive men, 
and strive as women not to be sinful and ungodly women. So this is all by way of working our way through the text. Let's look next. We've seen Abram and Sarai's first sin, then Sarai's further sin, then Abram's further sin. Let's look now at Hagar's victimization. Verse 3 and 4. Listen to how it reads. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, so now he was 85, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Okay. Where in there do you see anything about her desire or her consent or her complicit participation in this plan? Perhaps she was complicit. Perhaps she did desire. Perhaps she did consent. But perhaps not. Abram's sexual ethics are already pretty dubious. That's been established in, in earlier in Genesis and chapter 13. No, pardon me, Genesis chapter 12, the end of Genesis chapter 12, where Abram and Sarai go down to Egypt. And then Abram is willing to let Sarai become the wife of another man, and presumably liable then to all the sexual activity that befits a husband and a wife, so that he can be safe. Abram's sexual ethics have already been on display in Genesis as being very sinful, very wrong, very twisted, distorted, and perverted. Here's the question. Could Hagar really say no, given her situation? I'm not, I'm not necessarily suggesting that this was a violent rape, but this might have been some form of a power rape where Hagar really wasn't in a position to be able to say no. Whether she desired, whether she consented, whether she was complicit. The language is that Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. Was this servant of childbearing age eager to go into her 85-year-old master? I'll leave that to your imagination. But it's conceivable here that something really sinful and really evil beyond simply polygamy is going on in this text. Then Hagar becomes pregnant and I can't say through no fault of her own because the text does tell us that when she conceived, verse 4, she looked with contempt on her mistress. So I can't say through no fault of her own But then Hagar is mistreated by Sarai, whose idea this was. Again, this is victimization. She is suffering because of someone else's sin. And then Abram's passivity, which we've already looked at, where her rights as a wife are stripped from her, and she's put back in subjugation to be directly answerable to Sarai. So Hagar is very much in this section of scripture victimized by other people's sin against her. And it's important to note that sometimes we are victims of sin. There's a way of living and attitude that we could call playing the victim where every problem in our life is always someone else's problem. It's always because of something someone else has done to us and we never own responsibility for our own sin. That's wrong. Because we are sinners even as we're sinned against and we need to own responsibility for our own sin. But we should know that there is such a thing as being sinned against. Being victimized in horrible ways by the sin of other people. And that's a terrible thing. Remember I said at the beginning, sin makes a mess of things. Not only does our sin make a mess of things, but other people's sin against us makes a mess of things. When we've been sinned against horribly by someone else, we know the mess that it makes in our heart. 
in our mind, the way it affects our life decisions moving forward for many years, even many decades. There are ways that people can sin against us, say in an early stage of life, that literally affect us and make a mess of the way that we process and deal with things all the way through our lives. It is possible to be victimized by someone else's sin. And so in stressing our personal responsibility for our own sin, we should never be reticent to acknowledge the fact that there is such a thing as being sinned against. And sometimes the hurt and the pain and the mess that people are working through are not a result of their own sin, but a result of someone else's sin against them. And that should make us compassionate and tender and empathetic as we deal with people who are suffering. But Hagar does sin. Hagar is not only a victim. Hagar also sins. Verse 4, we've already seen. When she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. This is not right. Just as Sarai shouldn't have been looking with contempt on her, she shouldn't have been looking with contempt on Sarai. A brother preached to us a number of weeks ago from Luke chapter 18 where Jesus tells a parable about those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked with contempt on others. That sense of superiority, that sense of self-righteousness that makes us think that we're intrinsically better, more valuable than other people so that we look down on them. This is truly and properly sin. So whatever happened to Hagar up to this point, this is an ungodly response that she is accountable for. And then in verse 6, we see that she runs away from Sarai. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. That's the reason I read from 1 Peter chapter 2 earlier in our service so that it would be fresh in our minds. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. She shouldn't have run away. And the next scene bears that out. So we've seen Abram and Sarai's first sin, Sarai's further sin, Abram's further sin, Hagar's victimization, and Hagar's sin. And right now we've got a family unit that is a mess. Nobody's happy. Abram's not happy. Sarai's not happy. Hagar's not happy. Sin makes a mess of things, as I said at the beginning. But let's see Hagar's salvation. Abram was saved from sin. Sarai was saved from sin. And Hagar was saved from sin. Only biased thinking could keep us from this conclusion, and I hope to demonstrate that as we work our way through this text. We know that Abram and Sarai were both saved from sin, from the New Testament witness. Abram, there's tons in the New Testament about Abram. Romans 4, for example, tells us explicitly that he was justified by faith, not by works of the law. So Abram was definitely 100% saved from sin. It's anachronistic to use this terminology, but we can say Abram was a Christian. Sarai also was, if we can say it again, a Christian. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 5 tells us that she was a holy woman who hoped in God. She had faith in the promised Messiah and she was justified by faith as Abram was on the grounds of Christ's righteousness imputed retroactively to her when he died on the cross because she was a holy woman who hoped in God. Hagar. Before anyone objects on the grounds of Galatians 4, which we talked about two weeks ago. That passage doesn't teach that she was not saved any more than it teaches that Jews under the Old Covenant were not saved. That passage simply teaches that Hagar's children, considered merely as Hagar's children, or by virtue of being Hagar's children, 
were not the fulfillment of God's promises to Abram, ultimately, just as the Old Covenant Israelites, considered strictly as Old Covenant Israelites, or by virtue of being Old Covenant Israelites, were not the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises to Abram either. In other words, none of Hagar's children were saved from sin simply because they were Hagar's children. That doesn't mean that none of Hagar's children ever, to present day, have ever been saved from sin. Same as the fact that the Old Covenant Israelites were not saved from sin by virtue of being Old Covenant Israelites. That doesn't teach that no Old Covenant Israelites were saved from sin. It just means they weren't saved from sin by virtue of being Old Covenant Israelites. Hagar's children are not the children of promise, just as the Old Covenant Israelites were not the children of promise. That's all that Galatians 4 teaches us. But the children of promise are those who share the faith of Abram. That's what the New Testament teaches us. So, if any Old Covenant Israelites share the faith of Abram, a hope in God, as Sarai did, believe the promises of the Messiah, trust their souls to God, and the promise that He will one day crush the serpent's head, set them free from the curse and the effects of sin, they would be saved. So it is with Hagar and her children. They're not saved by virtue of being Hagar's children, or Hagar's not saved by virtue of her marriage to Abram or anything like that. But if she shares the faith of Abram, then she shares also the salvation of Abram. Salvation by grace through faith in the Messiah. First promised and then come. This is the one way of salvation all the way from the fall of mankind into sin in Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 22. So let's look at the narrative. And again, only biased thinking could keep us from the conclusion that Hagar was saved. Let's look at this. She runs away from Sarai. The angel of the Lord found her. Verse 7. All right? That's a beautiful phrase. The angel of the Lord found her. Was she looking for God? No. But God was looking for her. Who is the angel of the Lord? We see the angel of the Lord popping up in various places throughout the Old Testament. And I, I want to say a couple of things that we know for sure. And then I want to venture a strong probability. A couple of things that we know for sure is that the angel of the Lord receives worship and the angel of the Lord speaks in first person on behalf of God. In other words, I do this or whatever on behalf of God. Okay, so a being, angel just means messenger or representative. So a representative of the Lord who receives worship and speaks in first person. Nowhere else in Scripture does an angel ever receive worship other than the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. John bows before an angel in Revelation and the angel says, get up, I'm just an angel. Right? But the angel of the Lord receives worship. Right? And the angel of the Lord speaks in first person. The prophets quote God in first person, but the prophets don't themselves speak for the Lord, as the Lord. It's always, thus says the Lord. Okay, but the angel of the Lord speaks, saying, I, and then the Lord's words. Okay, and we see that right here in this passage. Verse 10. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring, so that they cannot be numbered for multitudes. Okay. Now, Compare this with Genesis chapter 15 and verse 5. He, that is the Lord, brought Abram outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. This is very, very similar language. So either an angel who is not divine is claiming to do something with Hagar's offspring 
that Yahweh himself has claimed to do with Abram's offspring, which would seem to be fairly adversarial, no? If it was just an angel subservient to Yahweh who was not Yahweh. Usurping a divine prerogative to dispense blessings and inheritances and offsprings and working the angel's own purposes out according to the pleasure of his counsel. Right? Or, this angel is a divine being. I think we have to say for sure that this angel is a divine being. Now we're coming to the strong probability. We see throughout Scripture in several places that no one can see God and live. We know that God is invisible and yet we know that somehow mystery of mysteries the second person of the Trinity the Son of God became flesh and dwelt among us at Bethlehem roughly 2,000 years ago so I'm not proposing to resolve how exactly the Son of God makes the invisible God visible how the incarnation works All I'm trying to do is reason from what we do know for sure, which is that the second person of the Godhead has appeared visibly to something that I think leads us to this strong probability in the Old Testament. That the angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. This is the majority position in the Reformed tradition, and I think it's a strong one. Because we are either going to say, if this is a divine being, that this is the Father, or the Son, or the Holy Ghost. And I think it it fits much better with the trajectory of Scripture to see this as being the Son, the second person of the Godhead. Now, as a teaching point, I want to instruct you that these appearances in the Old Testament, in Genesis 18, He appears again as a man. We're not told that He's an angel of the Lord, but three men, one of whom is divine, come to visit Abram in Genesis chapter 18. These appearances as a man or appearing to be a man or appearing to be an angel are different from the incarnation in this respect. That in these Old Testament appearances, if indeed this is the second person of the Trinity, He took on temporarily the likeness of something and then put off that likeness. Whereas in the New Testament, we're told that He became flesh and dwelt among us. Remaining what He was, He became that which He was not, as John Stott tells us. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that when He was resurrected, He didn't put off His human body, but that He was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Him. In other words, Christ still has a human body. Because somehow the second person of the Godhead became man. This is an astounding wonder of the incarnation. And it's worth pointing out as we talk about the angel of the Lord passages to point out this, that it's not incarnation in the sense of permanently wedding himself to the human race the way that he does at Bethlehem. But this is coming and manifesting Himself at various times prior to permanently taking on human nature. So this is then, I'm going to go with the strong probability and assume this as I continue through the book of Genesis. This is the second person of the Trinity. Which is why I said in the introduction of my sermon, we're going to see what Jesus does in this passage. Again, that's anachronistic because until... Mary and Joseph's boy was named Jesus. There is no Jesus. There's a second person of the Godhead. Right? But Jesus is a person born in a specific place in a specific time. So it's a bit anachronistic to say Jesus. Right? But this is the second person of the Godhead. This is Christ. This is Jesus speaking improperly. So the angel of the Lord. Let's continue with our main point tonight. The angel of the Lord, the second person of the Trinity, found her. Hmm. 
That sounds like something that has happened to many of us in this room. When we weren't looking for God, God came looking for us. It wasn't the shepherd who was lost, but the sheep. And the shepherd leaves the 99 in the fold and goes and looks for the one who was lost. I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. Who was lost in this passage? Not the angel of the Lord. Hagar. And the angel of the Lord found her. But I'm not going to rest my whole exegetical case simply on that phrase. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring of water, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The angel of the Lord finds her and confronts her about her sin. Hagar, servant of Sarai, he assumes that she still is the servant of Sarai. Where have you come from? Doesn't this sound like God looking for Adam and Eve in the garden? Where are you? He's intending to draw out a confession. Not that he doesn't know. Where have you come from? Where have you come from, Hagar? Servant of Sarai. And where are you going? Perhaps she's on her way back to Egypt. Apparently this is in the, the same direction as Egypt. She's maybe intending to run away from Sarai, go back to Egypt and start a new life there. Where have you come from and where are you going, servant of Sarai? So she confronts her, or he confronts her about her sin. Then, what does he do? She admits it. I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. To her credit, there's no excusing, wiggling out of it. I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. She admits it. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. He calls her to repent, to turn away from her sin, to go back and do the right thing. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. In other words, you go back and do that and trust that I will take care of you. Doesn't that sound a lot like a gospel call? You trust in me to take care of you. Stop trying to take care of yourself. You trust in me to take care of you. And you go do what's right. Leave it to me. Entrust yourself, your future, to me. Entrust your hope to me. Stop trying to achieve things on your own, accomplish things on your own, manage your own life circumstances. You trust yourself to me, and you go back to her and do what's right. Entrust yourself, as 1 Peter 2 goes on to say, to the one who judges justly. Listen to this. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure... This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. Isn't that exactly what the angel is telling her to do? Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. And go back and be subject to her. Not only the good, but also the unjust. And trust that the one who judges justly, me, 
the angel of the Lord will take care of you. And Hagar responds with trust, repentance, and worship. So she called the name of the Lord, verse 13. So she called the name of the Lord. This is very, very similar to what we read at the end of Genesis 4.26. At that time, men began to call on the name of the Lord. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Trust, repentance. We know she went back to Sarai. And she bore a son to Abram. Trust, repentance, and worship. We know that there's not the same clarity in the Old Testament about the gospel as there is in the New. The gospel is progressively revealed. In the beginning, it's a promise of Eve's seed who will crush the serpent's head. By the end of Malachi, it's much clearer, but it's clearer yet in the New Testament. So we shouldn't expect to see talk about Jesus and His cross and atonement and imputed righteousness. We shouldn't expect to see that here in Genesis chapter 16. But there's a clear call for Hagar to trust herself to Yahweh, to repent of her sin, and to worship. And she does just that in this passage. This is, I think, from my perspective, at least as clear as some of the other patriarchs we've seen in the unfolding narrative so far who we have reckoned to be among Yahweh's people I think that this is at least as clear as that we see the angel of the Lord coming, finding her, calling her to repent of sin calling her to trust herself to him and she responds with repentance and trust and worship so I I hereby rest my case I believe that only biased thinking being preconceived against Hagar would keep us from recognizing this call as a gospel call and recognizing her response as a response equivalent to what we would expect to see this early in redemptive history. So I think that not only Abram and not only Sarai, but also Hagar were heirs of life found by that same person, the second person of the Trinity, called like all together, each one, to trust in Him, to trust their souls to Him, to believe the promises of God's redemption, to believe the promises that He would take care of them, that they're not alone in this world, but they can entrust themselves to Yahweh, that they can believe that Yahweh really will right what is wrong, through Abram's promised seed. And Abram and Sarai and Hagar are heirs of this life. A few things that this teaches us then. Firstly, one is that salvation doesn't exempt us from sin here and now. If we grant that Abram and Sarai and Hagar were all, again to put it anachronistically, Christians, what we see in this passage is that Christians can get into a mess. That those who are heirs of life still sin against one another and experience the mess that sin brings into our lives. And those who belong to Yahweh and are called to be heirs of life can also be sinned against and hurt badly, hurt tremendously, be victimized in the here and now. Salvation doesn't exempt us from sin here and now. But here's a second and glorious truth. Sin here and now doesn't exempt us from salvation. In other words, when we look at ourselves and realize that we're sinners... And that we sin against other people and make a mess of things. When we recognize that we live among sinners who sin against us and make a mess of things. We realize that we're in a big mess because of sin. We also learn from this passage that Yahweh extends salvation 
to those who are in a mess. He justifies us. This is something that happens at the beginning of our Christian life, at the outset of our Christian life. We're pardoned for the guilt of our sin. We're accepted as righteous for Christ's sake. We're clothed in the righteousness of another, namely Jesus Christ. And so as we make our way through the mess of things, we don't make our way through the mess of things wondering if we're going to be accepted by God on that last day, but we make our way through the mess of things knowing that we're justified, that we are reconciled to God, that God counts us as righteous, that our sins have been nailed to the cross, the record of debt that stood against us, as Colossians says, has been nailed to the cross. So we make our way through the mess of life as justified people. And God begins progressively sanctifying us. There's what's called definitive sanctification where God sets us apart for His holy use. And again, that happens one time at the beginning of our Christian life. But we don't become instantly holy. Everything that we ought to be. There's what's called progressive sanctification where God makes us progressively more and more Christ-like. And so as we make our way through the mess of life, not only are we justified, but we're actually being made less and less sinful. More and more holy, to state it another way. And so we're seeing less and less of our own sin contributing to the mess of situations around us. We're experiencing more and more of the bliss of close communion with God as we grow in holiness. So even though we're not exempt from our own sin or the sin of people around us, as we grow in holiness, we're enjoying more and more communion with God. and More and more of the pleasure and the delight of walking in straight level paths of holiness and falling less and less into holes as we make our way along that journey. God is doing something now in the middle of the mess. Salvation begins in the middle of the mess. We see that in that passage and that's the story of our lives, isn't it? Salvation has begun for me and for you, brothers and sisters, in the middle of the mess. Salvation encompasses the eventual cleanup of the mess. Salvation in its final stage is not going to be less than being free from our own sin and free from the sins of others against us. So salvation has begun here in the mess, but salvation encompasses the eventual cleanup of the mess. Salvation includes the eventual cleanup of the mess. We're not always going to be stuck in an existence of sinning against others and being sinned against. It's not our lot for eternity to just be stuck in this mess. Zephaniah chapter 3 contains prophecy of what is to come under the rule and the reign of the Messiah in the end. On that day, it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by His love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival, so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time I will bring you in, at that time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth, when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. He will deal with our oppressors. And not only will He deal with our oppressors, but He will deal with our own sin. Earlier in the chapter, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. 
Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. God deals both with our sin and the sin of those who sin against us. Salvation encompasses the eventual cleanup of the mess. It's not our lot for eternity to be stuck in an existence of sinning against others and being sinned against. As I asked you at the beginning, don't you long to be free from the mess of things? That you need to be free from sin and you need to get beyond the reach of sinners. God in Christ has now done that, finished that, for Abram and Sarai and Hagar. Salvation began for them in the mess of things, and God has since brought them to His side, where they're no longer sinning and no longer being sinned against. And He will do it for us too, brothers and sisters in Christ. Salvation begins for us in the middle of the mess. But God won't leave us in the middle of the mess. Salvation encompasses the eventual cleanup of the mess. Are you in the mess of your own sin? Trust in Christ Jesus for forgiveness and begin repenting of your sin. He will justify you here and now and begin, as I said a few moments ago, progressively sanctifying you. It doesn't change overnight. And in fact, on this side of eternity, you'll never be entirely free from your own sin and other people's sin against you. But eventually, God will finish what He began in you. As He has now finished what He began in Abram and Sarai and Hagar. And God will eventually bring it to completion for all who are trusting in Christ Jesus. He will return to reign in a new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And He will gather out of that kingdom all the unrepentant. He will finish the work of progressive sanctification that He's begun in all of His people. And we will live with Him forever from sin. Free forever from sin. And free from the mess that sin makes of things. Sin begins in the middle of the mess. Or pardon me, salvation begins in the middle of the mess. But salvation encompasses the eventual cleanup of the mess that sin makes.